Hello, and welcome to Relative Pitch. We appreciate you tuning into our podcast. Our mission is to give you young musicians' perspectives on hot topics in the music world. By sharing our thoughts and opinions, we hope to help with bringing positive change and diversification to the music world. Here are your hosts, Lauren Green, Anthony Morris, and Michael Brown. Hello, everybody. I hope you have had a great week and all and such with school starting. We're getting through the new year and everything else happening. I would like to share a little bit of my week because it's been it's been rough for me and Gertrude. If you don't know who Gertrude is, that is my car. Lovely little Volkswagen Jetta. Um, so Gertie had to uh, have a little oil repair. She was leaking. She was a little old. She was leaking. She was leaking everywhere. It was leaking everywhere. <laughs> wrong <laughs> slander um so she had a little oil repair and it took like a week and a half ish type deal and now i try to start her up and she didn't really want to start so we've been i've been and these two know everything so i've been just me and gertie been praying holding fender and fender and we just been we've been trying to truck it on because i gotta get to school school's starting for y'all i mean I, we just been online though so I'm making my trek up to Michigan slowly but surely. So how has y'all's week been? I will say, before we do anything, I would just like to say, Michael has the baddest luck with cars. Actually, both no, of, no, both of these two gave me my bad both, luck. Both um, of them have listen, bad luck with cars. Michael like, has a bad time with not hitting people. My problem yeah. is more, <laughs> more <laughs> actual car issues. I will have to say that. <laughs> Yeah. Last time I was in Michael's car, I was hit. So um you not hit. You were in the you were in the passenger seat. We hit. And like, mind you, I was in my own personal car because we were going to brunch and I had passed Michael because I was like, uh uh-uh, you going too slow for me. So I am literally driving up to the brunch. So I'm turning in and I get a call from Lauren. Hey. So we've just been in a wreck and I'm like, how? Literally, I just passed you a minute ago. How in the world did this happen? So both of them have very bad luck with cars. Um, That just means I need a chauffeur. Yes, honestly, I need a chauffeur too because I don't really like driving anyway. But um, my week has definitely been I don't know. I'm back to teaching now. Um, This is our first week back with students. It was a crazy week. It went by very fast, but you know, I remember on Monday after my first full day of teaching, tell me why I came home and I immediately got into bed and I went to bed at like five o'clock and didn't wake up to 6 a.m. the next day. Like I was so tired and it's like my body forgot how it is to be on like 100 for eight and a half hours during a day. Um, And so this week has really been trying to like, all right, here we go. Let's get back in our groove. We're back to teaching. So it's definitely been an interesting, but I think I am back. We'll see next week if I am fully back. Lauren, how was your week? Yeah, I mean, my week I feel like was really productive. Uh, Y'all know me, I can't sit down for too long without getting antsy. Um, so, you know, it's just been preparation for the new semester that starts, te- well, technically it would be tomorrow, but that's MLK, 
So no, also yay, I'm okay, woohoo. Um, so it will start Tuesday and I'm really excited for one of my classes that's a women music and feminist thought class, which I am just super, super duper excited about everything that class is gonna teach me. And so, yeah, it's just, you know, preparing, getting everything ready. I think everyone just wants a really fresh, productive start to this new year. So Michael disagrees, it's okay, we will ignore that. <laughs> for him. <laughs> but yeah, with um, today's episode, we wanted to actually continue our Wagnerism book club series by actually doing multiple chapters within one episode. Um, and so the way that we did this was kind of cool. We kind of assigned everyone a different chapter to present, I guess, if we're thinking about, you know, grade school, you know, doing PowerPoint presentations kind of, um, but not really. Um, you just see our faces, but we're going to go through each chapter and just kind of hit the main points, you know, we always, you know, give you guys the, you know, the warning that we're not going to read this book to you. <laughs> we're mainly just pulling out major topics and points of discussion that we can, um, you know, engage about uh, during the episode. And we always say, please, like, if you have, if you can and are interested, go actually purchase Wagnerism by Alex Ross. It's an amazing book, so much information um, that relates to music art, history, politics, all those amazing things, because um, they always do relate to each other, as you will see more of while we start this um, little endeavor today. So yeah, I'll start with my chapter, which is chapter five, that's titled Holy German Art. And so um, this chapter really focuses on the one of Wagner's, it's kind of considered one of his most political works, Die Meistersinger von Nürnberg, um, which is an, his epic comedy of the Renaissance Nuremberg and talking about Hans Sock, Socks, Socks, <laughs> uh, the wisest of the town master singers who gives a lecture about the beauty and power of German culture. Okay, so, so you might be thinking in your head, okay, like what's holy German art? Like what is even that? So during this time, as we know, Germany was all about flexing, you know, just about being like, we're the best, we have all the best stuff, don't have any outside influences, come to Germany, we are Germany, like we are Germany. And so um, it's basically a cultural movement or idea to keep Germanic art pure of outer influence. That is the idea of holy German art, right? And so um, during this time, there was the threat of, the, I believe it's pronounced Walsh, which is the fear of like French and Italian opera coming in to infiltrate and take away, you know, from Germanic opera, all the, you know, big dramatic stuff. And also the fear of the, I guess, the lack of knowledge of strange people, AKA foreigners, AKA Jews. Okay, so you're starting to see this, you're starting to see this, um, th this uh, pattern pop up more here. Um, so one of the things uh, I have a question for you guys is do you feel as if this fight to conserve pure German art led to a sense of German superiority and set the path towards Nazi Germany? Well, that was a loaded question. Uh, <laughs> You're gonna go, okay. Anthony? No, you got a girl. You got okay, it. okay, okay. So I don't know, for me, I take, I have a big thing. I watch a lot of football, if you don't know. I used to be huge into sports, softball and football mainly. So I don't know, this sense of pride and sense of like, I don't know, superiority you said, it could lead to Nazi Germany, but it also could just lead into making yourself better every day and being like a better you. 
like, because I, like, when I go into an audition, go into an interview, go into any of these things, this podcast, I'm going to say stuff, like, I know exactly what I'm talking about, no questions asked, bullet point, exclamation point at the end, and I think that's what they were trying to do, build a sense of community, sense of, like, we are who we are, and that is, we're, like, rising up, and then they went on a curve, so I don't think it was directly correlated I think if you have this sense of confidence and trying to be the best you, it could turn to arrogance and it that it's a slippery slope once you go the wrong way. But I don't think it's a direct correlation. Yeah, I mean, I think having self-pride and being prideful, um, it is a, a, a blessing and a curse. Um, because I but I you also with pride need to be humble. And you need to um, really look at this. I mean, when we preserve art, we're proud of our art. Um, but it does come a time when you have to ask yourself, is this art causing prejudice against somebody else or something else? Um, and if not, then that is where the, the of course, stay pride, um, prideful in, in your work. Um, but I do think that there were some things in the German culture that they held as pride and as like, ooh, this is German. But on the flip side of that, that is also hurting the German Jews, the Jews across the land, you know, everywhere like that. So I think it's definitely one of those 50-50 things where it depends on how you take it. Because um, you can look at America. And uh, I, I'm gonna bring this up because this was a topic of discussion this week of you know the uh, Pledge of Allegiance. For some people, the Pledge of Allegiance is something of pride. It is something we are American. But for some people, it's like, what are we proud of? These are all the bad things that is going on from uh, racism, to uh, um, being sexist, all these things. What are we proud of? There is some. There is that 50-50 where some people, of course, have some issues with it. And some people are like, it's America, go America, all this. And it's just like, wait a minute. So I think it's definitely one of those. But um, I have something to go off on that later from the next chapter. Okay, sweet. Yeah. I mean, that was, it was interesting because you know, my mindset of everything going through this chap, especially this chapter, it was more of like how, like that sense of national pride almost seemed to lead to that, the sense of superiority that then in turn turned into the, oh, we're better than these specific people because we are superior in all those things. And yeah, the, there's a very big difference. In America? I'm sorry? Don't you think that happened in America? I mean, and that, that's exactly that. And I will, okay, let me just, <laughs> I'm just <laughs> myself. Um, but so, okay, so next. So I mentioned earlier that there's the the character Han Socks, who is, yes, mentioned to be the wisest of the town master singers. And he gives a lecture about the beauty and the power of German culture, all right? That doesn't sound like anything crazy, right? So um, Hitler uses a speech from this for one of his rallies. Okay, all right. So um, this is, I think, why the Meister Singer is considered to be one of his most political 
works because of the impact and actually the what it actually is saying within it and it explains a little bit more of kind of what happens and we'll um i'll talk about it a little bit later of why it's seen that way but question another question do you feel oh sorry this is already did that one do you think people realize how much influence art and specifically music has on politics and history no uh short and, short and sweet i love it yeah no. i don't you know i don't think so either i feel like back in those days it definitely had a lot of um effect on politics but i think nowadays not so much i mean if you listen to music now it has really nothing to do with politics um there are some of course there are some you know exceptions Easy. to that like uh kendrick lamar's uh album was definitely a uh i think it was damn that was the one that had was like a answer to all of the racial injustice that was going on and of course you have those small ones but not like back in the day like we have to always remember that when Wagner wrote music that was like ah, that was like everybody went and I and I don't think music has that effect now like that I remember the last time I think it had a grand effect on national scale like classical music proper culture music I think is always gonna be a little bit more uh recognized and accepted and realized toward art and specifically politics but last time i think classical music was like really up there was when jfk died and i think bernstein came out i think that's why his mass was written hmm. um i could be corrected but i'm pretty sure he did something for jfk's funeral and with bernstein jfk like that whole thing if I'm correct, because you know sometimes my memory's spotty, that was like that was a big deal. JFK was assassinated, and he was a very popular president. And the minute he died, I think Bernstein did some of his stuff for his funeral and all this other stuff. I think that was the last time they were really extremely interwoven, in the U.S. specifically. Yeah, I think I think we because this is our art form and we have seen like why specific pieces were created. We know that they are actually correlate like art, history, politics is all one thing that moves together. Mm -hmm. um, but I think I find myself sometimes going on rants to um, my non non music friends or non music career friends because they ask about things. And then I'm like, did you know that this and did you know that this and this happened because of this and how major like, no, who would have known that, like, Hitler chose to use a speech from a Wagner opera during a rally of his? Like, that's, that's kind of, when I read that, I was like, I don't, I didn't even know that, you know? That's not something that you would teach in schools because history is almost shown in this light of, like, just policies and politics and, and nothing but that, but they don't realize how these things come to be, and it's because art reaches people. And so a smart, I don't really want to call Hitler smart, but a, someone who knows how to get things the way he wants would know that to connect with people, you need to connect with them through art and things like that. And that's exactly what he did. He used a lot of Wagner music. He used music in general to talk to the public and that's, that's his thing. Um, so going back on this whole, just explaining this, uh, how this work is considered to be one of his most political. So another character within this, um, Walter von Stolzing, who was a young singer knight with a rebellious style, 
is a character in here and he kind of goes against what Hans Sachs is kind of talking about. The end of the opera is um, where, yes, uh, Sachs is giving his words, the lecture, oh, Germany, Germany, Germany. And basically, Walter is kind of trying to resist it and then he just goes with it. He just gives in to this whole praise of German superiority, like Germany, number one, all that. He just kind of goes into it, right? Um, which you may not, at the time, no one may have noticed what that symbolized, but nowadays they know exactly what that was meant to symbolize. And so there's a, um, there's a quote from Beyond Reason by uh, Carol Berger, or Berger maybe, um, that says, I can think of no other example of a masterpiece so profoundly wounded by its ending. Mm. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, so now it's, and I think that's why, because it was such a, it's as if Wagner kind of like saw, and that's, that's my next question, um, because I kind of had a thing where it seemed like it was like German patriotism that had led to a transition of Nazi Germany, which people are like, oh, maybe, maybe not, you know, it kind of depends. But do you think with that type of ending, did Wagner kind of predict the future, you know, of what, of what was going to happen later on in Germany? I'm pretty sure a prediction, I, I feel like less than a prediction, but more of people who probably watched it was like, that's what I want to do. So it was kind of like that was the blueprint and somebody else saw it. And so they were like, this is what we're going to do. But I'm pretty sure Wagner hoped that that's how it was going to go anyway. So yes, I think it was a, a, a prediction for it. I don't know if it was an ex like exact prediction, like Anthony said at first. Like, I think it was something Wagner was like, you can do this in the future if you want to. <laughs> Hint, wink, wink. Just a little nudge. Just a little nudge. But as I said, like an episode or two ago, history repeats itself unless you acknowledge what's happening and have a conversation. And art is a part of history. So you see this in one of his famous operas, most political operas, and then you see it repeat itself and repeat itself and repeat itself over history. So, I mean, it could. It could have been a deciding factor. I don't think Wagner especially was like, this is going to happen, but he was like, might happen. Might. Absolutely. I don't think he uh, could like actually see it, you know, had a third eye or anything, but definitely no. maybe a maybe a hope um, that something. Look, Wagner probably went to all types of, you know, uh, uh, psychics and everything, trying to see what's about to happen. Who even knows? But I, I, I believe, and also real quick before Lauren goes on, the mass was to commemorate the JFK Performing Arts Center, and it was off the tail end of Robert. Kennedy's death. Just there to you know. make sure I was correct, I had to look it up real quick, typey typey. But just wanted to let y'all know it was it was commissioned by Jacqueline for JFK Art Center, and just the whole assassination, everything just fed into it. Hmm. That's a good uh, trivia thing to know for possibly later. We should do a music trivia. That would be fun. That would be. Um, <laughs> so the next section that I have um, of discussion is the talk about the restagings of 
this, the Meistersinger von Nuremberg. So people, you know, that's kind of something that people did to like flatter or even parody um, people during that time is to kind of remake what they already did. So the remakes, I'll, there's, I have three examples. So his grandson de basically de-Germanized it when he did his restaging and he made it, basically it was nicknamed the Meistersinger without Nuremberg um, because of the fact that he kind of tried to take the whole German like vibe out of it and just kind of make it more of a, I guess, more neutral. So, and I, so then um, there's another, I think, a, not playwright, but someone else restaged it. And during it, the performance stops and the singers debate the meaning of holy German art. Mm. Okay, that's another one. And then Wagner's great granddaughter made it to where it was Nazi era set design. And during the final monologue, um, or, or it's a not during the final monologue where it's all about Germany and power and all that stuff, it's set with like Nazi era vibes to it, right? So she, she's, you know, she's kind of saying it with saying it, like she doesn't care. Um, and they kind of show Sachs, who you know is to be the one who is giving the speech of, oh, Germany, everything, to be he's really unattractive. He's put in this really demonic light. And while the, uh, Walter, his character, um, the knight, is more like the outcast hipster hero. So he's the one that everyone kind of relates to. They're like, oh, like we, like a, it's like an underdog mm -hmm. that people, they make you root for during that time. Um, and then instead of giving away to Sax the whole the, the demonic light and everything that happens, he actually, the um, uh, Walter runs away. So he like is like, no, I'm not a part of this. And he goes. And so my question with all that, do you think works so unfortunately negative, negatively political, such as Meistersinger should be redirected, rewritten to show it in a better light or left untouched? Um, I think it should be restaged to fit whatever the time is. So like she did where she took it and she made it to, I'm pretty sure it's what, 1940s, probably 50s. Um, she made it to what was happening during that time. Because I think if we were to see something in its old light, I don't think we would uh, connect to it as much as we did if it was to us now. So say if she redid it, or anybody redid the opera to right now, and they used let's just say police and black people. Then it's gonna hit way more bells and whistles to all of us than it would just say, you know, the Holy German art, Germany, all that. Like to me, I would be like, oh my God, like, what is this? And it, it's funny cause I don't know if anybody's seen the Romeo and Juliet, the like new version with Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio. DiCaprio. Oh my gosh. Like it, I remember Another seeing it. Shirts. Yes. And it's funny because like one, the movie was very weird cause it used old English, but then I had, like but like yeah, it had like, the, it had cars and everything, but like you, you relate to it more because you're like, oh, this is what they were saying. This is what they were doing. Oh, okay. So I think in, in this case, I think it would be good to restage it to fit whatever that generation's mindset is. Yeah, it was 2007, by the way, that production that she did. Oh. 
I'm like a little torn inside because part of me is like, leave it untouched, give us like, boom. But the other part of me is like, if you can retie it in, and because the whole thing right now is we need to get more people in art. Like something JFK said was, if art falls out of society, society will fail. I don't know why I'm so JFK today. Don't ask <laughs> me. But um, I think it should be redirected. It should not be shown in a better light. It should be shown as raw as it was, exactly what it was. Never rewritten. Only redirected. And like rewritten, I mean, you can do it in English, blah, blah, any of that. I don't care about that. But do not change the story. Because the minute you change the story, you you change the original um, intention of it. And that is personal. There's a reason Wagner wrote that. And that's why I'm like a big, like, I love that little Romeo and Juliet movie Anthony was talking about with Leonardo DiCaprio. Because I'm like, yes, Leonardo, plus like old English, plus like cars, guns, boom. So it's like the perfect marriage for people who are like, I don't like Shakespeare. Or like West Side Story was another one of those. Romeo and Juliet, rewritten, restaged, all this other stuff. Like there's many different things. And if we can do that with older works, we will see a resurgence of interest but the vast majority of me wants it left untouched a little bit too. Yeah. Yeah, I understand that. It's like we want to see history <clears throat> as it was and as the people during the time saw it happening. Um, and then, of course, we have to do it in a way where we're not promoting that, but we're just saying this is what, it, it, it is history, you know, leave it there, you know. And I think that's like the problem. I think that's a little bit of what's happening even today in America of things of like what, what like let's, historicize something like yeah this happened but we don't have to put it in our front yard every day anyway um continuing on <clears throat> so i am gonna wrap up here in a little bit there are a few questions that actually kind of flow together so i'm gonna kind of do a big conglomerate um this next section mainly just talks about what we were discussing earlier about the whole path to nazi germany um and so you know there's a quote from wagner saying i'm the most german person i am the german spirit and we already knew that that's how he felt. And he always said his art came from the power of Germany. Like he felt like him, he was rooted in Germanic power. Um, there was also this, this is really interesting to me. So there was a dominant paradigm of German history that talked about the Sonderweg, which is called the special path model. Okay. And what's cool about this is that that was the, that the idea of this was the praise and leash on old Germany is what pushed them to Nazi power because they never set up a par parliamentary democracy like other European states. So a radical alternative was created. So it's like basically because they didn't set up a you know normal democracy, like other states were moving towards that. It was kind of something the monarchies were kind of getting old news. Like we're not, I mean, whatever Britain is there, but um, for the yeah. most part, you know, everyone's kind of moving to that. And they are saying that the reason why Germany fell is or to that is because they needed a huge something to shake up what was currently going on in that. Um, of course, there was oppositions um, to it, and some people even said that because there was a whole thing. Well, oh, but we're so many social movements are happening. Like we're like so feminists and unions and LGBTQ, or at the time probably just like LG because they didn't know what anything else was at the time. Or LGBT, LGQ maybe, um, and 
But while those social movements were also happening, uh, militarism and anti-Semitism took way as well. So it was just something like, oh, good things are happening. Then you don't see this other stuff kind of creeping up mm. on you as well. Um, and someone, the quote of that is that I found was where reactionary and progressive impulses collide, um, which I was like, okay, that's, that's pretty interesting. So a few questions that I had about that was, the first one is, do you agree that the glorification unleashed on old Germany resulted in the rise of anti-Semitism, Nazism, and Hitler's power, which is something we already talked about, kind of, and were the progressive movements a distraction from the rise of militarism and anti-Semitism? Um, I do believe some of the glorification of old will usually lead to something not the best. Because I think about it, when you ask somebody, and I just saw this on something, if you were to ask somebody, like, what is the best decade to go back to? And if anybody says from 1900 to, honestly, now, it's like, and you're, say you're a person of color, what are you doing? Because, you know, 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, all of them is not the best. If you look back to the old, you are going to be Jim Crow. You're not going to have the same things. You, uh, I think Hollywood has portrayed uh, this going back to old as this glamorous thing, 1920s. What was that movie with... Uh, uh, um, La La Land, La La Land, Great oh, Gatsby, Great yeah. Greatest Showman, where it's this like we're back in the twenties and thirties, and this is that, and we're you know having fun, but it's like, yeah, for you, because me, if I went back in that time right now, yeah, <laughs> tell me what I'll be doing. So I think looking back to that old way can sometimes glorify. Uh, something not so good. And I think that did lead Germany to becoming what it did, especially in the First World War, Second World War, all of that. Um, and of course, come on now, using something to distract you from other things. I mean, if that is not what governments do, even nowadays, where they'll put something, look at the media, Something bad happened. Um, the bombing in Nashville. Let that sink. That was three weeks ago. But we haven't heard nothing more of it. The media moved on. But we still have not even talked about this. So it's like, oh, let's put this in front of you. Let's talk about this. Also, the riots that happened a week and a half ago. No one is talking about that anymore. It's like on to the newest distraction. And see, of course, that I think it is, those are those things that is man-made to get you somewhere else. And I think it's, it's really just kind of trying to save face for the government. I agree. I mean, that's just not a government thing. That's a, just a human thing. Oh yeah, definitely. Distractions in our lives. AKA, why there be excuses, why there be um, extraneous lazy days. Like, you can have a rest day, lazy day, whatever. If you do like five in a row, you know what I mean? You're distracting from some other things. Or when you don't prioritize, like, that's just a human nature, mm -hmm. honestly. Like, and no one's going to be 100% productive 
every single day because that right. that's just tiring. I'm not here for that. Sorry. Um, I do think you can look into history if you discuss it and look at it objectively. Not objectively. Subjectively or if you look at it for what it is and not from your own viewpoint like you're not just reading a book that's just like oh i was amazing in middle school and then in high school i never failed a class and then in undergrad i did a little trip but it was just amazing you know what i mean if you look at it like that yes you're gonna start glorifying well it's like um there was a joke there was a guy on twitter who posted that he was reading mein kampf on a bus right and uh which that's you know hitler's book and so he literally, he has to be reading it and going, he feels like he has to like just shake his head the entire time to show that he's not going like, oh, yes, I understand these principles. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you can do that and look into history, there will be no glorification. Mm-hmm. Right. You just learn. treating it like actual history and not like something to like. And you're like, oh, this was amazing. Why can't we go back? <laughs> yeah, I mean, but people do that. Like, all the time they're like oh let's go back to the 50s (laughs) i'm sorry i'm pretty sure with the dances and the milkshakes and you know singing throughout the high school hallways i'm pretty sure that's cute but on the flip side of that there were people getting slain in the streets with water hoses dogs and everything else so there is two parts of history that if you're gonna look at one side you're gonna have to look at the whole other side to that as well and yeah. then come to a conclusion. If you still want to go to the 50s, God bless you. So I'm going to try to wrap up these last two major questions I have. So I'm basically, you know, we have a point of time where, you know, Wagner is now seen as like old, old school. He's old head. People don't want, he feels like he's holding on to an old Germany that people want to move on from, you know? And so it's a fight of holding tradition versus moving forward and he's seen as like a figurehead of old German ideals and everything which makes people question whether or not they should be promoting his work anymore anyway if that held on if you know if that were the reasons that a lot of old German ideas were still around it's like why maybe we shouldn't be doing this as much um and luckily for Wagner he Ludwig II of Bavaria um was a bit obsessed it was really it was so he made a castle that was basically wagner styled airbnb mm-hmm. i mean like the bag the bathroom was like tristan and isolde and the bed no the bedroom was tristan and isolde um lohengrin was who even knows but like every room had a theme and it was a wagner theme so this guy was obsessed right this is the reason this is what saved wagner during this time is because he had a, a monarch who literally loved his work and had productions of The Ring, I think Tristan Isolde, a bunch of other of his works like that were performed. Um, and that kind of saved Wagner during that time. Um, and so one of the questions that I have is like, you know, do you, do you agree that because Wagner was seen as an old figurehead of old Germany, that his, that his works maybe should not even be played, seeing how, what that turned into later on, and also, what do you think would have happened to Wagner and his work if he had not been taken in by Ludwig? <clears throat> Choked. Um, I think I think Wagner's works would have resurged. It might have taken a little bit more time. Like, 
Mahler was eventually played in Germany again. You know what I mean? I, I think like it, it will take time, but it will happen. There's a resurgence of Bach. Like it will like if you are great enough, there will become a resurgence of you. Um now the other question is can you ask the other question again or where yeah it was like what um so i mean they were kind of tied in like do you agree that because wagner had those old ideals that his work should have been kind of resigned which i would think you would say more of like and eh, it probably wouldn't have happened because it would have just been brought back up you know at a later time i don't think his work should have been not played again um i because that's always been my stance and it's still like his his work was great enough, and he didn't actually do it. Like he didn't. He was not Hitler. He he might have like picked up the gun, handed the gun, loaded the gun. He didn't pull the trigger. So yes, he needs to be held. Like you need to see that for open. But he did not call like put into action all the millions of deaths. Yeah, so it's like his his art could be viewed more just on the basis of art, but yes. not in terms of its political whatever that goes on inside, obviously. <laughs> because there's more than political in his art. There's a lot of other things. So that's why I feel like it should still be looked at and played. Anthony, what do you think? Well, um, I see where that is coming from, but I always have to be on the side of that. If you load the gun, you give the person the gun, you're going to jail just as much. And mm -hmm. I think, and I, I cannot, especially in the chapter that I, I had, um, knowing that all the characters in his operas, we say, oh, it's not political. Literally every single character was political, um, especially about the Jewish. Did you know there's not a outright Jewish person in any of his operas? However, all the bad characters are stereotypes, characters of Jewish people. Therefore, no matter what his operas is very political and it is very saying what his, um, like what his stance was. Now, do I think his music, um, if he didn't have the backing of um, the King, would his music still be played? Sure. I'm definitely positive it would have been a resurgence just like everybody else. There have been many composers who music wasn't played during their lifetime, but then when they died, something just, you know, sparked. Even artists, like actual painters, a lot of their stuff don't get, you know, really uh, realized until their death. So I think that would have been the same thing for Wagner because you cannot deny that even though his stuff is very controversial, it is very pretty. It does invoke some type of um, emotion inside of you, but you always have to realize his music and his stance on everything was and will always be to uh, demean Jewish people literally in every single thing he did, he made sure that he was going to put somebody in there to be this stereotype, this caricature of just saying how bad Jewish people are. Yeah. Yeah. So um, before I do my last 
question. I just wanted to do a thing to shout out to the um, first responders out there, healthcare workers, and all of the educators out there. Um, you are what's keeping this nation afloat. Like we thank you so much for your service and everything that you are doing for us because truly you are not thanked enough, never have been. Um, but hopefully after this, people will you know see more of like everything that you do. So thank you from us here at Relative Pitch. Um, and so my last question or my last idea um, to, for y'all to think about, there was a quote um, that said, patriotism as a collective blindness or is patriotism is a collective blindness that undercuts human solidarity and promotes perpetual war. And um, yeah, give me some uh, thoughts and opinions <laughs> on that. Patriotism equals war. So yeah, so I'll say it again, patriotism as a collective, or patriotism, sorry, is a collective blindness that undercuts human solidarity and promotes per perpetual war. Mm -hmm. So to sum it up, patriotism equals war. I agree. <laughs> I see, I can look I look into it and I see um, arrogance equals destruction. Yeah, because like I said earlier, patriotism leads to superiority, which means to well, we both can't think we're the best, so we're mm -hmm. gonna have to fight to figure out who's the actual best here. Mm -hmm. It's like a trickle down effect. Yep, yeah. literally well, what I it think, is. I think you can be. It's like the whole you can be proud of stuff. You can be confident of yourself, but the minute blindness comes into it, that's the minute destruction comes into it. Mm -hmm. so there's always a blind spot. You gonna hit something. Um, you know about that, don't you, Michael? Yeah, I do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I got my blind spot reflectors now. Oh my god! Uh -huh. I'm prepared. I am prepared now. <laughs> but yeah, the whole thing is like it, the minute there's arrogance, ignorance, and just all that stuff is the minute there will be destruction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, agreed. All right, Anthony, I am passing it off to you for chapter six. Yes. So my chapter was Jewish and Black Wagner. And so basically this chapter was going through the ins and outs of how Jewish people felt about Wagner, how Black people felt about Wagner, what were, you know, people's thoughts on that. And so how it opened up was very interesting, actually, how the chapter opened up. Um, it was reading from W.E. Du Bois' uh, The Souls of Black Folks. Um, they focused on the chapter of, um, it's entitled, Of Coming of John, which basically this chapter tells about a Black boy native of Georgia, go Georgia. Um, he was a little Black boy named John. John Johns is his name, yes. And he had a friend named John Henderson. Um, he was a white boy that was, um, he was the son of, of a judge. And so they ended up, they were, you know, best friends. But then when they got of age of, you know, going off to school, both Johns went separate ways. So uh, John Johns, he, you know, went to predominantly black school. He really got into his studies. Uh, the other John went off to New York, went to university. Um, and then John Johns, the black John, he went to New York to uh, Lohengrin, an opera of Lohengrin. And he sat next to, you know, uh, you know, everybody else and was listening to it. And he just was like, oh my God, it's so beautiful, it's so beautiful. 
and then a uh, the stage manager or the audience manager comes and asks John to get up and see if he could, you know, come with him. And he says, uh, there's a problem with your seat. And in reality, what happened, John Henderson, remember his friend, his white friend from growing up, actually complained and said that he does not feel comfortable sitting next to the Black John. So th that is a story from W.E. Du Bois. It was telling uh, the whole, that whole chapter is talking about something called double consciousness, which um, W.E. Du Bois definitely, um, he coined that term, which let me, let me make sure I get this right. So double consciousness is the sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others. And then he also had another, um, another uh, thought as well called the veil, which expresses a complex web of divisions and connections between black minorities and white majorities. And this, that chapter was really talking about that veil of how white and black people interact. And it definitely showed that story of like, we grew up together, you know, we grew up together and still your, your superiority has now come into play here. Um, and it was, it was very, it was very interesting reading that, but I do have a question. So um, it asked, or Alex asked, what powers do spectators have? Um, are subjects to domination of his works complicit to the ideolo ideologies, or do we embrace the works and take possession of them to remake him in our own image? And that goes to um, Wagner's works. What powers do we have for his works? Are we just going to be complicit in his things and take on his ideologies, or are we going to take them into our own, you know, possession and make them to where it fits us? What do y'all think about that? Yeah, I mean, that it's kind of what we already have been saying about the whole, there's a way that you can talk about history and be able to say, oh, let's talk about this amazing opera that happened. And then also maybe even mention now, some people took it in this light. That's not how it should have been taken. You know, just on a pure art form is kind of like, I think our job as, you know, musicians kind of, and, you know, spectators, if you want to call it that, to make sure that, yes, while we are playing them, even we are playing the music, promoting the music, we're not maybe promoting the negative ideologies that came with that work. Mm -hmm. I agree. I mean, W.E.B. Du Bois said it himself. If you can, if you, if you can watch, if you can't watch Wagner and can't understand and listen to him, then what's up like you can you can always take something away from one of his operas mm -hmm. and that's that's i think that's every art form like you can listen to any song and take something away from it you know mm -hmm. what i mean especially in pop culture right now too you don't have to take the original meaning you can understand the original meaning but you always connect it to you personally if it means something mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to you it doesn't always have to like, and that's why, like, spectators have a ton of power. You can be canceled overnight. You can be researched overnight. You mm -hmm. can be promoted overnight. And it's all the spectator. 
Mm-hmm. And it's like musicians or artists shouldn't go out and be like, I want them to love me. Music should come from what's inside. Yeah. Definitely. They, whatever they do with it, they do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, one other thing that really came from the opening was very interesting to me because um, this is a very sensitive topic, especially to uh, minority people. Um, and Alex says it like this. When people of color admire Wagner, they are often accused of self-hatred as if this such admiration annuls their identity. And people of color and Jewish people, because this goes for really anything. When you go for, and this will come up later when I talk about some other stuff, but when you will sit back say you are a person of color and you sit back and you still agree with the person who have um, time after time done bad things for you and your people and you still overlook that, then it does look like kind of self-hatred or hating of your own people. So what are your, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, there's that currently going on now about it's very obvious how we see people defending people of color defending um white supremacists and people who have those ideologies and it makes no sense besides the fact that they must hate themselves you know there's there's absolutely no way you can be conscious and supportive of those ideals of someone who they just believe that you're inferior just because of genetics you know so yeah um that makes no sense now for me, you know, being a black female, like in Wagner's history of all the mess that he has done, like, you know, yeah, it's, I mean, he's done a lot of bad stuff or like his, uh, he had some really bad ideas and morals and yes, that happened. And so I disconnect a lot of times whenever I'm like, okay, let me listen to Ride of the Valkyrie. Let me listen to Lowen Grant. Let me listen to Elsa's. And I'm like, just like, just solely focusing on the art itself. And then I'm trying not to imagine, oh, this guy who hates Jews wrote this, you know, like, no, like I, there's a certain level of, so you, for art's sake, it's for art's sake, you kind of have to just be able to kind of separate it. Now, when you're in like classes, and you're talking about it. No, definitely don't put it together. But in order to like play that music without the intention that he had behind it, I think you kind of have to separate them a little bit. Mm. Blindness equals ignorance. Ignorance equals destruction. So being blind to it is literally going to end to very, very, some bad things. Like that, that's everything in history. Mm-hmm. All this other stuff. If you're blind to something, it's going to come back and get you. Definitely. definitely. And that comes up um, at the beginning, and then it's also brought back up um, during later in the chapter when it is talking about um, this conductor. His name is Herman uh, Levi. Uh, he was the conductor of the Bavarian court, which was loaned to Wagner to uh, play uh, Parsifal um, by Ludwig II. Um, and Wagner was perplexed by. Uh, Herman, because Herman was a Jew. He was. Um, And he made some very, very, very 
microaggressive insults saying that he should get uh, Levi baptized before conducting Parsifal. Like, I'm sorry, that that is an insult. That is an outright insult. That's just like somebody asking me to get a bleaching before I conduct the concert. Like that right there is very disrespectful. Um, and people that are in the Jewish community, one um, heavy, I think he was an author, was very upset at uh, Levi because he was like, even though you are sitting here, you're still conducting this, what is the problem? You know that this man is against literally your entire existence. Um, but Levi said, even though he got harsh treatment from Wagner, he kept the faith in music and in the man. Hopefully by him being there, he would kind of change Wagner's mind or something. But my question is, could you work for somebody who constantly degraded you? No. Uh, yeah, no, I'm sorry. Like it's, you know, we face microaggressions in a lot of different ways in life <clears throat> being, you know, based off of <clears throat> your sex, race, uh, sexual orientation, all those things that can happen. Things that someone's like, oh, it's just a joke or anything. But those little things are like little pokes. Yep. And you do it too much in that area is going to give away, you know? And so, no, I could never work under someone who I knew walking in, I'd be like, oh gosh, what are they going to say to me today? Like, no, never. And I know people who've been in those situations where even like at work, like, you know, African-Americans, like have a tradition where we like, we do our, our hair. Like, I mean, we have, we have wigs, we have sew-ins, we have, I mean, we have our natural hair. And so like, we're really diverse in that sense of like, I could, I could be a chameleon and, you know, I could change shape shift as many times. And so I know people would be so nervous I've had friends who were so nervous to have their hair done because they were so scared of what their colleagues and other people were gonna say about it. Like, oh my gosh, your hair got so long over the weekend. Like, what are you, like, why would you, what's wrong with you? <laughs> like, yeah. some, there's so, something that's socially lacking if you would say something like that to someone. And so, yeah, no, I could never imagine working under someone like that. No, I, and the comment of, we should get you baptized before you conduct this. Excuse you. Like, how dare you say that? Like, that is, is disrespectful. I, I, for one, I would have never took the gig, number one. That, that's a thing, no. Um, but when he would have said that, oh yeah, we would have been fighting. Like, that, that's just on everything because you are disrespecting me as a person, you're disrespecting my community, you're disrespecting my religion, you're disrespecting everything that I hold dear to me right in front of my face. Yeah, there's no way in the world I could have ever still stayed there and had faith in you or your music because both of you, I would have told you to go straight to you know where, but that, that's just me. That's just how I feel on that subject. But I digress. Um, now, you know, also, in today's term, people would have said that Levi and others who work with Wagner was, was and is a sellout. So do you think that he was a sellout by working with Wagner? Um, and you could put this into other situations as well. Would you, would you call it working with? Because wasn't he chosen by the king? Well, he was the conductor of the Bavarian court 
uh, opera orchestra. And so when he, when the king licked them to Wagner, it was kind of like, well, he is the conductor, so he got to come with anyway. So I feel like, I don't think it would be technically like, it technically is working with, but I don't think it was his own choice to go out of his way to work with Wagner. Yeah, that I was, I agree with that. I think if he would have personally went up to him and was like, I want to work with you, then you, you did that to yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. He still has, I think, I don't know if I would call it a sellout, because I think a sellout is when you literally sell yourself out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, but this one, he was, he knocked himself down multiple pegs. Mm-hmm. Respect himself. And he didn't appreciate himself. I yeah. would say that. There are, some, there are some Jewish people who, these are the words, <clears throat> and it reads, um, uh, there was this guy, his name was uh, Rubenstein. Uh, he had suffered from a mental illness. He had introduced himself to Wagner as a Jew who asked for salvation through participation in the production of Nebulun. That's a sellout. I know like Uncle Ruckus. <clears throat> yes. Um, and Uncle like... Tom. Yeah, like all those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because he, it was kind of like he is on his knees pleading that take me in. I don't want this curse of being a Jew. Like it was really kind of and and like uh, it makes me so depressed. It it that just uh uh-uh. it it disgusts me. It disgusts me. That is truly what I would call a sellout. Or like yeah. Uncle, is it is it Rufus? Maybe I was thinking about a Remus. different uh, Remus, Uncle Remus. Oh, maybe so. Anyway, y'all know who we're talking about. The you know, you know, if you don't, we'll tell you about it later. But <laughs> it's, it's just like people who are self hating, and to the point where yeah, they feel like they have to be, like they see the other another race or another whatever as superior, and they need salvation themselves mm-hmm. and. It makes absolutely no sense at all. Yeah, that now that sellout. That is to the point where you you are saying that you are inferior. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And uh, one little thing. So Jewish people. I mean, just like any 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 race or whatever. Um, one, it is not monolithic at all. In like in the black community, we are not all the same at all. Just like uh, if you're Jewish, if you're gay, you're bisexual, whatever, none of us are all the same. And in the book, it says um, some Jewish people advocated to boycott Wagner. Others reasoned that we can gain greater revenge by listening to his music. Many simply accepted him as part of the cultural backdrop of time. So that's saying that, I mean, many, many Jewish people had way many different uh, aspects on just this one issue anyway. Um, and just like any other culture, same same deal. Um, I agree with them when they said they, like, you can take the power away from him. Mm-hmm. And you can listen to him and take the power away from him. If, like, that's up to you. That's not up to him. Mm-hmm. He might want to take the power away from you, but if you do not allow him and you can and you still respect the art or you can do whatever you want with the art, but you go and watch it, 
give it an honest watching, you take you're taking the power away from him, away from whatever it is. And the message is saying, if you can do that, and it is hard, mm-hmm. you don't want it. But you know, I mean, so I mean, you can you can watch it and you can take the power away and you can do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. It depends on what you want to do, but you cannot let no person or no art or anything have power over you. Right. Um, and in the last little section of this chapter was talking about Black Wagner. And according to the book, contrary to popular belief, many Black artists saw Wagner's different operas, all of his works as kind of a blueprint to promote Black, pro-Black movements, um, such as, you know, a different of his operas, using that how German he was, uh, like W. Du Bois saw that as like, wow, we can use that as pro-Black. See how strong-willed he was for his cause. We can be that for ourselves. Um, and which W. Du Bois definitely uh, admired Wagner. Um, he actually took a trip to uh, Beirut in 1936 um and it was weird time 1936 mind you that is literally hitler's germany and many of his friends said why are you going to germany right now as a black person hitler's yada 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 why and he said that he felt less uh open hostility in hitler's germany than in roosevelt's america is a devastating verdict on American race relations. So he is saying he felt better in Germany, Hitler's Germany, than in Roosevelt's America. I mean, How do you feel about this? That's him basically just saying, say it to my face if you're going to say it. You know, like, I feel like it, it's the whole like being very shady and low key about it versus being very like, no, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm saying it how it is and I'm not being apologetic about it, you know? Um, now, I don't know if I would have felt as confident <laughs> to go to a, a Hitler reigning Germany at the time. No, I could probably say I would not have, um, sure, go for it, I guess. Uh, I mean, he made it out apparently, so good for him. <laughs> But, you know, what I will say is that Europe and the treating of Black artists, was that that relationship has always been weird because I've always loved spirituals and learning about, you know, Black classical singers like Marian Anderson, Paul Robeson, all of these people. And what used to happen, like, I did a lot of research on Marian Anderson and she was treated very badly in the US, but yeah. went overseas to Europe and achieved so much wide known um, success, very much success. And many different other black classical artists did the same thing where they left America to go to Europe and they were, they were received as great. Um, and it talks about that a little bit in the book, um, but it is very weird because you have Germany who's literally killing Jews, but has this infatuation with um, with Black classical artists. And I was like, this is very interesting. But the last thing I want to 
I want to say on this is uh, in the book, it says the conceited and self-hatred would imply that these Black Bachnerians were in some way ashamed of their heritage. Um, and then it later says about W.E. Du Bois, he said he had a lot of things, of course, loves of Wagner. Uh, but did you know that he was not uh, a fan of jazz and other popular styles because um, they fetishized Black racial difference through the fascination with the most revolved and seamy side of African-American life. He also didn't like sports because it perpetuated stereotypes of Black people as purely physical beings. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, is, it was very interesting to see this because you see that W. Du Bois had a very infatuation with Wagner and this, but when it came to, I guess he had like a, a third eye for seeing something above and beyond from what right. we see normally. Um, so I would say that this chapter was very, very interesting and a little bit of shedding the light on some stuff. So Michael, to finish us out, what were some of the things for your chapter? So this chapter was crazy, loved it, and fun. So it started off like, can music entice us other than feeling happy or sad? That's been an underlying theme with Wagner entice he's an over sexualizing person in his writings and it's seen and it's looked at many have made the connection of wagner bringing out the sexual nature of music and some studies have shown that around the turn of the century during this time especially the study when they were under hypnosis people would play ride of the valkyrie people would play tristan and you would see the reaction plain reaction, no holding back. So do you believe that Wagner thought about the sexual nature as he was writing the opera, or did the opera just portray it after he wrote it? Um, I definitely think there are ways in which a song or something can have like a very a seductive nature um, because that song in... Um, Hamilton called Say No to This. It's it kind of starts off with like a really deep low cello, like dong 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 dong. It's like very like like a little bit of jazzy and it's it's very scandy, scandalous, mm -hmm. very scandalous. And so it had I do think that there are ways in which you can kind of cause like a mood to be brought out, you know. And I guess this also happens because in films, whenever we see something maybe of a seductive nature happening on screen there's usually music that will accompany, accompany it that will have that also that same feel to it. And I also think like probably Wagner was trying to write what happens in real life. And of course that little deed is what happens in real life. So I think he was just kind of trying to make it relatable to the audience that was there. Do you think Wagner was actively thinking about it while he was writing? I think so. I mean, I'm, you know how, say if you watch a kid's cartoon and they have the, the jokes for the adults as well and you're like, wait a minute, that's a joke. Like I go back and watch SpongeBob and I'm like, I see what you did there. I see yeah. what you did there. And I, I think he did. He did actively write it, but it probably was writing from like, 
this to wake them up just in case they were asleep. Yeah, there were intentions there. Mm-hmm. I, I agree, but some people agreed and felt a certain way, like our friend Niche. Mm-hmm. Turning. He wrote that Wagner was sick and corrupt in his writings and composing, and that volunteering and volunteers, the people following him, were even sicker, if not as just as sick, especially the women crying over his works, incapable of fulfilling her first and last profession of bearing children. And the men who did were having their masculinity compromised. So people can't just like stuff anymore, Mish? Like, geez. And he wrote part of it a little bit more. Moral crusades in art seldom succeed in failing their targets and that's the thing if you want to become moral then you're going to eliminate how much art and we've had these conversations before if we're going to look at it like black and white good or bad we're going to have to throw away a lot of more composers than we want to mm-hmm. and Wagner was no exception what provoked disgust in one group of people stirred hope in another those who identified with the dispositions that the composer was accused of spreading sexual freedom, unconventional gender roles, and homosexuality saw him as a heroic figure, an enemy of conformity. So, I mean, he had a lot of like underlying messages, like there's political, there's this freeing of just social ideas, there's this condemning of social ideas. He had like, this was like a whole like 10,000 million layer burrito in every single opera that he wrote and so like what what are your thoughts like especially like niche's writings of like women are here to bear child if you watch wagner you're not listening to your first and last profession men are losing their masculinity because they respect and watch wagner i think it's a little extreme but i want to hear y'all's opinions i mean we know niche's history with wagner it was like a it was a whole he admired him to the point where he started hating them, hating him, you know, and it's a little bit of like jealousy that kind of happens here. Mm -hmm. I feel that. And then also you having the audacity to say something about like, okay, women, if you go in here, you're not doing your only job, which like that's sexist. So it's already in the trash can. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it was very like, I don't know. It felt very like, you have one role and if you go do anything else like if you happen to like this one thing then obviously you're not doing the right thing in terms of your gender role or everything it no no i I don't buy it i don't buy it (laughs) it's annoying like it's funny because i'm watching bridgerton right now and yeah uh i'm watching that right now and legit it kind of has the same thing of like women at the age of 16, you're supposed to get married, have a child, start having a whole bunch of children. And whenever, like, that enrages me. So hearing this enrages me. And also, Niche, first of all, we all know he was sucking the tip, okay, of Wagner. Here's the thing. I said it, and I'll say it again. Um, so the fact that he is saying this now, but the only reason we know that he's saying this now is because he got so upset that Wagner didn't return his love. We all know Wagner was, you know. <laughs> you know, saying it without saying it. 
You know. I mean, it, it's just crazy how intense he was, like, after Wagner and just doing all this stuff. Also, following the women in Wagner, feminist in Wagner, all this, Wagner had an interesting opinion and thoughts about women, I thought. In most of his operas, Wagner idealized the female spirit, but still put females in a subservient role. That like was a little weird. His wife Cosima written many a times in her diaries about the things he would say that would just put her down. Like it is a man's job to do X and X. It is a woman's job to make sure I do nothing in the house. Mm-hmm. The house is set. Children are fed. All this other stuff. You were you know, and he like put those. Cosima was still like an artist of her own. And she was still feeling these things. Um, and it was just like this, it was this whole 19th century misogynistic view. Very misogynistic. Well, I think it, it kind of plays to the whole thing of like, you know, a trophy wife, where it's like something you want to attain, but it's like, it's more of an idea. And then like, don't actually, you're, you're not actually supposed to do stuff though. It's like yeah. your purpose is to be a very like, for people to admire you. Mm-hmm. And to be like, oh, so pretty and nice, but no, you don't have any like actual content to you. Yeah. And when you talk about the female spirit, it's like those men who admire their moms, but then like will hate on their wives and stuff. It's like they like that spirit, but they don't like the fact that I see you as an equal. Like mm-hmm. I see that in you see that in movies and stuff, and you're just like, why are you? Why do you think like this? Like why? And what really like got me really thinking about this was his whole he wasn't the picturesque of masculinity. He did not scream conventional masculinity. He fetishized silk, satin, exp- and spent lavishly on these fabrics. <laughs> and this was around the 19th century, turn of the century. This was not a thing back then. He was in the, he was in the own sanctity of his home and did not share. But of course, I mean, like, he loved his rose perfumes. He had this ideal of androgyny and spiritual merger of the sexes. This does not scream conventional masculinity. This is, I, he loved the female spirit a little. He loved it, even embodied it sometimes in his own home. And it's just, it's crazy. So, like, was Wagner gay, or? Why can't you just come out there? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, just just go ahead and say what we're, you know. We're, 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 we're getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> we're getting there. So many female cr- critics, feminist critics, looked at the ring cycle, which, well, as we know, is this four opera, this huge, long, and the attributes that the female characters possessed and wonder if they were going against misogynistic views or feeding right into them. And, I mean, in all of his operas, they were strong women. Women saved the day in some of them. Like the Ryan Maidens, the, the Valkyries, who, the angels who come down in, in, like, German mythology, come down, pick up the men, take them to heaven, or Valhalla, whatever it is. Like, was he, like, underlyingly fighting for them, giving them these strong attributes, 
Or was he like taken away from them, still giving them them subservient roles? This whole thing is a huge convoluted mess. He was a sub. He's a beta. I said it. A beta, for anyone who doesn't know, um, is our term for someone who is not an alpha, meaning that they do not possess qualities of a superior form or superior being. Thank you. Thank you. Chefs and cooks. <laughs> is we, that- he was a sub for women. He was. He so was. Women have made Wagner their own, including anarchist Emma Goldman, who commented more women attended Wagnerian music and understood him than men. This was a little weird for me when I was first reading it because it displayed, if if he displayed, and he did, such misogynistic views, how were you supportive of this? And we just talked about it with W.E.D. Du Bois. And it's just like, when you take that power away from it, they underst- they may have understood deeper into the story and made their story their own. Mm-hmm. And saw these attributes and were like, okay, we're still playing this subservient role because at that time they were, but he's given us these attributes. In ourselves, in our own lives, we might be playing a subservient role, but we are strong individual women. Mm-hmm. So this whole of like, he's doing this, but doing this. And what really found it interesting for my Georgia folk, there was in 1912 at the Hotel Goldener Anchor, listed many American women from the South who came to Beirut. And they especially came from Macon, Georgia, which was the birthplace of poet Sidney Lanier. And me. What do you say? And me. (laughs) (laughs) It was my birthplace. (laughs) There were 11 women from Georgia, seven of which were from Macon, and then there were five women from South Carolina. I thought this was just interesting because we see the South sometimes as this certain thing, projecting this certain thing. Like the South was the South. We always seen the North, the huge hubs like Chicago, New York back then as people who appreciated the arts, people who wanted to support the arts. Never making Georgia and South Carolina came to my mind in 1912 of just like pushing for the arts and stuff. I don't know about y'all. I always, I mean, white women from the South is very The Help. The movie The Help, that's what I see, white women from the South. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's when you, when you <laughs> told me that, I was like, all I think about is white either white women from The Help or 12 Years a Slave, where she threw the little thing at um, the black slave. Yeah. That is what I see of white women from the South, especially making Georgia. I need to, uh, I need to uh, watch that last movie you just referenced. Oh yeah, watch it because she throws a, um, uh, you know, where you put your scotch, the canister, the glass heart canister. She picks up the canister and like throws it at the slave because her husband is like infatuated with the slave. So the whole situation was wrong, but that's what I think of when you say anything about a Southern white woman from that time period. So that was um, female feminist Wagner. This whole <laughs> convoluted mess, as I called it, everything was convoluted. You do Bitch. one thing, then you do another. You act this way, but then you do another. It's like teenage relationships. 
It was very teenage. Love this person, but on the weekends I'm seeing this person. I mean, dude, we all know Wagner was in a negligee at nighttime. Silk or satin. He preferably liked pink, by the way. I forgot to mention that earlier. His favorite color was pink. And a pink satin negligee. Which, there's nothing wrong with that, but at the same time, when you have the ideals that you do about a people. Body, a full body silk or satin negligee that hates Jews problem Got right yeah, now that those are some you can like think and be normal but then when you have all those other things i'm like ah yeah 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 so the reason i chose this chapter was gay wagner oh my and, God. Yeah. what does that have to do with you michael no i'm straight so uh i just remember that it's my time <laughs> to go it is my time to go now the lies the lies <laughs> so um Colette, who was a writer, was quick to realize the development within the gay rights movement toward the end of the 19th century within Germany. Confidence in the movement had made Wagner a part of the cultural genealogy of it. They were like, we are taking him as ours. If not gay himself, sure was exceptionally a friendly ally. This queering of Wagner drew on his sexuality transgressions from works and writings. I thought it was just amazing how they were like, him, he's joining our team. He is our martyr for this, partly. We're taking his writings, his works, and we are making him gay Wagner. It's kind of funny. I don't know why. That's just like... It's... This whole thing had me like my head rotating. Well, because there's so many different sides to this man that I don't think we would have ever thought about. Never. <laughs> Never. Yeah. In this one, I would like to hear Anthony's opinions on some of these things. So some say modern homosexuality was to some extent a German a Germanic invention. This German gay rights movement grew out of an ethos of romanticism with its respect and hero, heroic individuals who manage age and customs and live according to their own law, their, their own law. AKA, AKA want to be and live your life. Live your life. Okay. So, okay. So mm, let, let's take this. So I do think that gay, cause I mean, if you go back to the ball culture, let's go back to ball culture. If you were to think a lot of sometimes they loved the whole extravagance of the romantic period of um, Marie Antoinette and, you know, even look at Madonna's Vogue video. Like it's very, that whole style um, of that. But do I think it came from Germany? No, I think it came way before that. Like way before that, we all know back in Greece and Egypt, they had their own little gay concubine, we all know. Um, but I do think it was definitely, uh, um, I guess, kind of magnified during the Romantic period because it was so luscious and everything was so pink and, you know, everybody's just doing what they want to do. So it's definitely an infatuation there. I think the modern resurgence did, Germany did help with that. And 
it is funny how relatively open-minded about same-sex that he was, and he exalts ancient Greek um, mode of menorlib, or love between men. I'm going to read this section. Please open your books to page 295. This love in its original purity makes itself known to us as the noblest and most selfless expression of the human sense of beauty. The love of man for women is, in its most natural form, an egotistical and pleasure-seeking impulse in which the man, while finding satisfaction in a definite sensual pleasure, cannot be absorbed in it with its entire being. The higher element of this menorlib resides in the very fact that it excluded the sensual selfish moment of pleasure. Nonetheless, it did not only compromise a comprise a purely spiritual bond of friendship, spiritual friendship was the blossom of a consummate enjoyment of sensual friendship, springing directly from the enjoyment of beauty, indeed from the absolutely physical and sensual beauty of the beloved men. I forgot, this is a PG show. Um, so all of that was to say that they enjoy company of men. It was an ode to men. They were, saying, to men. They were saying the love of, between men was more real, more inner than the love between men and women. And I thought that was interesting. I mean, I guess I can understand how someone could think that because it's like, you're going against, I guess, a societal norm or something that's been kind of taught throughout the ages and for you to kind of accept that that's who you are. I mean, it's a lot more, because you know, straight people don't have to come out. You're just expected, like, that's just like, yeah, of course, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, now, making it more, meaning it's more, I don't think so necessarily. I think you have to be a very strong type of person um, to be open about who you are in that sense. But love is love, like all love stories, if they're right, like, you know, between two people who actually love each other, um, you know, for the right reasons, then it's, I mean, it's love, you know? Mm-hmm. I thought it was just interesting how he talked about how men reacted in two different loves, I would say. It was very interesting. So the last thing I want to leave on is uh, Deaths in Venice. Obviously, Venice was the hub that gave a bright yellow light, and many people came, kind of like a bug zapper, um, to explore its beauties, to explore its art, everything. This destination had a reputation of being a very relaxed environment, especially sexually beautiful. Hmm. Also, the fact that Wagner died in Venice added to the city's legend among gay tourists. In 1920, the African-American philosopher Alan Locke, because there's an E at the end, I didn't know how to pronounce it, so I'm saying Locke, took a trip to Venice with a young protege, Langston Hughes. You should all know Langston Hughes. If you don't know, you need to go stop, pause, Google, and come back. Um, Said Alan knew Venice like a book. Their trip included the plaza, 
it included all these grand things, the gondolier song, of course, just this wonderful food and luxury. Lockheed attempted to seduce Hughes in the course of this Ventarian, Wagnerian adventure, but Hughes held back. On the way back, Hughes read Death in Venice. It's the title of this section. For some gay men and women, this itinerary of Tristan, that's what it was called, the gondoliers, the beaches, sexuality, freedom, that threatens a dangerous loss of control, this often led to one's indulgence of passions, which could lead to their disillusion, degradation, and extinction. How would you react to someone tr like treating you this way in Venice, just giving you everything you wanted, taking you on this huge trip of gondolier I mean, love and all this other stuff? Obviously, they wanted something <laughs> out of this trip. This, my first instinct would to be like, I'm on guard right now. Like, what is this? You know, I mean, or it could be fun, you know, like Venice is cool, like overindulgence is something people like to do on vacations so that doesn't seem too unnormal for today's culture honestly um back then maybe i would have seen it a different way especially with the setting and the people who who went that's a little um a sus as the kids say as the kids say now i yeah it would have definitely been a trip where i would have had i would have slept with one eye closed one eye open um but i i mean back then they took trips all the time like different people I, I i was just thinking about this you always hear about people would travel to england and travel to the u.s i don't really think we travel like that anymore i feel like we stay in our own little places and then we do it like it's the way it's written in storybooks is like they travel every two months they were somewhere else in the world mm -hmm. um so honestly i'm pretty sure back then it wasn't like too much out of the norm it was just like we're finna go to venice we're finna read these books we're finna learn about some poetry and all this stuff um so i don't think it was too much out of the norm but we all know there's probably some other attributes that probably happened so definitely sleep with one open. i hate you so much i just loved and liked to see like just the whole itinerary of tristan first of all tristan and Isolde tying that together and how it was viewed as an itinerary and how it was viewed as an itinerary of overindulgence, which is a thing, which is, and it could lead to disillusion, degradation, and extinction, just like blindness. Blindness can lead to destruction. Yeah, I mean, it's like the whole thing of like, when, yeah, if you're on vacation, if you're overindulging or you see these operas and you see all this, it's fun to see like kings and queens like the idea of them getting to have everything they want but obviously we like know that a lot of that leads to like death and that means a lot of people are suffering in their kingdom and all. so there's, there's a negative you can't you have to be able to see the positive and the negative of that and know that you can't always like um live in that type of uh that you know that type of feeling because you know we have things to do in life and so you have to be re you have to be realistic I think. So, well, I think that all was three cool. of these chapters were very in depth. Um, 
but it was definitely gave different facets of Wagner. Um, yeah, so. I think overall, I mean, it, it mainly it's just, um, I mean, some of it was more diving into like more of like who he was as a person with mm-hmm. y'all's chapters. And um, mine, may, like the main thing of mine is, you know, just making sure that history is, history is history for a reason. Like mm-hmm. we remember it so that it doesn't happen again, but at the same time, we're not going, we, we have to be very careful with how we remember history and um some history is to not be celebrated some history is to just be history and you learn from it and you move on um which i think is something that's still being taught to us today in modern times but um uh so i have a game a quick game before we end called um if i can find it on here what's on their modern playlist so this game is basically i'm going to name composers who are you know deceased at, at that at this current time and you just tell me some ideas of music that you think they would be listening like modern music that would be on their playlist um so start with someone easy like mozart oh taylor swift i was oh my gosh because okay I it had to be something that was kind of like simple. Yes. Or Miley Cyrus, part of the USA. Okay, like, do not cover Miley Cyrus like that. And I uh, no. It's very USA. simple. It's very like not it, I think, for music. Hannah Montana, maybe, but not Miley Cyrus. Don't be coming for her. Excuse me. You said Taylor Swift. I let you have Taylor Swift. I said Miley. Okay. What about Stravinsky? So he was really uh, had a lot of erotic, a lot of erotic um, Prince, sound. Prince, but Prince is dead. But Prince music. I don't. When I hear Stravinsky, I just think of like of mice and men. That's a the, the band. What? Oh, the wait. band. Oh, the mice. There's like yeah. There's a what? band. It's no. It's like a screamo band. Like yeah, then that's what I'm talking of mice and men. Yeah. I, I see him going the alternative route in music. I can see that. Which that I, would make sense. I can see that, but also I really don't, not in that genre, but yeah, I can see it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Shostakovich. Oh God, he would like. I think maybe, I don't know, like Solange. Solange? <laughs> <laughs> because I feel I like he would only like the music by, by people who are like really big activists and who they're very vocal with like their opinions mm-hmm. and everything and i feel like that vibe like of her like, that'll be something that he's like oh yeah yes mm-hmm. yeah i could see it i could see kendrick more than solange oh kendrick okay now kendrick, i get yeah. that too yeah i understand that too Something yeah because like i never like he wrote like he wrote slow things that were pretty but he yeah. never a lot of this stuff that we like to hear is not slow the really bombastic yeah in your face yeah what about um bogner Lady Gaga. Adele. Ooh. So really over the top, dramatic. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I can see that. Yes, like that's legit the song I'm thinking of. And I'm like, Adele. Adele. Um, what about Gershwin? Um, um, uh, that's alone. A- Jack Harlow? Did you say Jack Harlow? No, I would think like um, Billie um, Eilish. Oh, yes. 
um, what is it? You know who I'm talking about, though. And I'm feeling. Oh, Buble? Buble. Thank, thank you. Oh, Michael yeah, Buble. Yeah. 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 Michael yeah. Buble. But I could also I see like, like, Billie Eilish. Yeah. Billie yeah. Eilish. I could see him like. Like, like her, they're like, on the like, top of the brass, like yes. now. Which composer would listen to do a leap? Not do the peep. <laughs> Shout out to Wendy Williams. Uh, um, <laughs> I don't know something. Not I mean Sousa. Be, oh yeah, it'd be poppy. It'd be poppy. Yeah, be poppy, just like Marchie. Yo, so I've been listening to Levitating recently, and how she be coming in? She be getting. I'm like, okay. No, who would to Jesse J? honestly i see it as like who is a like bach somebody who did a lot of melismas because she always be running all over the song oh that makes sense like ornamentations yes. yeah that you know makes sense bach would listen to y'all gonna look at me funny for this you know he'd be liking the extra stuff fantasia because he, he was trying to set it he was trying to set it oh my gosh I could see that yeah. oh, she'd be, she be singing it and then her little Fantasia. no no uh-huh. well that, that was interesting it's always fun to see like what perspectives we think these composers would have to this day but um now this is a awesome episode I, I'm liking how we're getting through this Wagnerism let us know how you guys, you know, like the episode and everything and all the opinions. We have a lot of opinions, obviously, that pop up through here. Um, but other than that, we hope you guys have a very lovely week and hope to see you next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening and being a part of our conversation. Remember to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter and subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear what you thought about today's episode, so leave us a comment or review. See you next time. 